I actually didn't do this, but I, I, I had um, I had half a mind to just Google, go on YouTube and just search classical music and see what came up. Yeah, yeah that would that would be that would be interesting. Um, you have to actually do it, yeah. I have to do it right now. I'm gonna search classical music and see what the what first is the, what is the, yeah. I just wonder what is number one. All right, and the winner is game show music here too. <laughs> No, it is. So after the ad, that is music to help you chill, meditate, <laughs> study, game, relax, or focus. <laughs> so, so after that, um, uh, which I mean, you can't ask no, for any more than that, right? This is, piece, yeah. this is the perfect music. Um, so after that, it is, not too differently, I suppose, the best of classical music, 50 greatest pieces, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, and Bach. <laughs> I like the voice that you had that in. I see you got some tea there. What kind of tea are we drinking today? Earl Grey, as always. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, got, I got to say true to my colonial roots, man. <laughs> <laughs> All cool. Right. cool. So, um, do you want to do any follow-up? Yeah, so, so after we talked about YouTube a lot in the last episode, people kind of wanted specific, you know, URLs, specific places to go to kind of dive on in and kind of explore what YouTube has to offer in the classical world. And it can be a little daunting at first just because YouTube is a very vast land, <laughs> as everyone knows. There's just there's just a lot of stuff on YouTube. Even for, you know, a niche like classical music, it's just, you know, you don't have enough time to see it all. It's I think it's hot mess is the word you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hot mess. Yeah. Yeah. So so some of the people I talked to and some of my friends said, Yeah, awesome. I'm on board, but, but now where do I go? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, we, we decided to, to um, just sort of compile a, a list of our top five favorite YouTube videos, um, plus honorable mention, um, just, to, just to have something to, to concentrate the mind a bit and, uh, and, and give people, you know, solid URLs to go follow, and we'll make a YouTube playlist out of this. Um, so you can go, um, you know, you, you can click through and check out all these videos that we talk about. And I think this will be hopefully a great place to um, to start out, you know, just looking through all that YouTube um, has in its catalog. So, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, so this is our our top five. Oh, yeah. I should get some game show music, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You need, we need some we need insert game show music here. Um, Welcome to the Impolite to Listen Top Five YouTube Video Playlist Showdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, I know, I know this is also kind of a trip down memory lane for us, or to be more specific, I guess nostalgia lane, because when we first, you know, started to get to know each other back in college, we would just stay up real late in our dorm lobby to three or four in the morning on a weeknight, just watching YouTube videos and showing each other what we like, what we found recently on YouTube. And that was kind of back, I guess, earlier last decade when YouTube was a bit more Wild West than it is now. It was a lot <laughs> less organized and metadata wasn't quite there yet. So you kind of had to really know what you were looking for or really, you know, accidentally stumble across something in the truest sense. Yeah. Yeah, those, those are fun. Those are fun evenings, you know. Um, they really uh, evenings uh, sorry e mornings. evenings mornings whatever yeah they're really the, the impolite to listen predecessors 
Yeah, so to kind of set the stage, uh, Streeter and I have both compiled our top five classical music YouTube video lists. Some of the rules or guidelines we we decided upon beforehand was it does have to be just one video, right? It if it's a video that's part of like a series, like that's fine. If it's like you know a lecture series or something, that's fine. But we're only going to talk about the one video, so it has to be one URL link that we could put in the show notes to make it easy for people to go explore. So and you know we're going to put one it video in the show each. notes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> show notes were built for this. Yeah. <laughs> Another uh, guideline we agreed upon was it could kind of be classical anything. It didn't just have to be a performance, but it could be you know a documentary, an interview. Um, GoPro footage, as we joked about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the final rule and an important one is that these actually have to be videos themselves on YouTube, not just like an audio upload. Because um, you see that all the time, which is great. You know, YouTube is a great place to listen to audio. But yeah, these can't just be an upload of an audio recording where it's just the album art for the full length of the video. This actually has to be a video of some kind. So. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we yeah. were talking about, like one of the reasons that we were talking about last time for why YouTube is so great for getting into classical music is that you have performances alongside, you know, documentaries and interviews and lectures and stuff like that and master classes. And um, mm. it's a really great way to, to sort of get into the 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 whole culture around classical music and stuff like that rather yeah. than just listening to to, to the music um, and I, I think a lot of these sort of you know extracurriculars if you will or like extra musiculars um, help <laughs> help get into classical music more too you know because you can you know I, I don't know about you but I always find it a lot more compelling to um, listen to a perform uh, like listen to a performance once I've actually heard the performer talking about it um, mm. and well put. Um, yeah, that, that kind of stuff is abundant on YouTube. So, Absolutely. So without further ado, I say we dive right on in and let's right. start with our honorable mentions. All right. <laughs> we have a top five, but we were allowed, you know, kind of an un- honorary mention, a video that just missed the list, but we still want to give it a plug anyways. Cool. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, my, my honorable mention is uh, Jacques Bono playing... Uh, let me try that again. My honorable mention is Jacques Bono playing the Bach cello suite number one in G major. Um, it's a famous one that I'm sure everyone's heard. Um, he, he plays yeah. the prelude to that. Um, famous prelude. Jacques Bono is a French um, electric bass player. <laughs> and, uh, you I just know, love I, that. <laughs> <laughs> not not an electric bass player, a French electric bass player. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And uh yeah, I, I totally love this this video and this recording. Um he he completely rocks out, you know. It's it's as if you were hearing Bach Bach at a rave or something like that. <laughs> It's really like, it's really not inflected in any way. He kind of just, you know, he dives right in, and the the pulse is like really rock solid, and um, he 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 just he shreds all over the guitar. And I think Bach really is suited for this kind of treatment, where um, 
you know, it's one of the things that I love about Bach is that it can be surprisingly uh, headbangerish music, um, and this really this really brings out um, that. And it also it also drives home um, one of the points that I always like to make, which is which is that when you're when it comes to Bach, the question of instrument is really a red herring. It's um, the architecture of the music mm. is so sound that like it really it really works well no matter what instrument you're playing on. So whether it's you know a cello as it was written or electric bass with Jacques Bono or um, Jacques Lussier playing with a jazz piano trio, it, the, the structure of box music really works. And so, yeah, I, I really love this video. What about it do you think um, cellists would find interesting who have maybe played this piece over and over again? You know, it's, it's a standard. If you're a cello player, you've studied this piece, you've played it, you've probably performed it. What do you think they might find particularly interesting about it? Well, I think cellists, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think cellists on the whole, um, on average, like play this, play this prelude with a lot of inflection and a lot of tenderness. And it, it is a very, um, you know, sweet, if you will, prelude. And, it, you know, there's, mm. there's a lot of, there are a lot of beautiful moments in the music. And I think cellists on the whole tend to want to bring them out, understandably, um, but you know this guy he really just winds it up and lets it go and it doesn't stop it doesn't it doesn't stop or it doesn't change its course from the beginning to the end um so i think that approach is is something that i think cellists would find interesting um it's a gotcha. very you know when you're playing when you're playing um rock music it's not the the you're not really trying to bring out all of the tiny little tender moments you you just you know the the, the pulse is the beat is the most important thing um so he really mm. brings that approach to to Bach, um, and I think it's a really interesting sound. Gotcha. Is he just performing this like in a recording studio? Is this a live performance? You know, I can't. It's hard to tell because he is on a stage. Okay. But there's no. Okay. But it cuts off before there could be any applause. So you know, that's another, another okay. reason right. why I love it. <laughs> it's left up to the viewer to yeah. decide. And you know, I think it's safe to say too with with this video, um, the music is great, you know? Exactly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the music is great. It's, it, is, it is seriously one of my favorite, if not my favorite, recording of this prelude done by anyone. Gotcha, um, gotcha. It's just so interesting, and I, I, I listen to it just for fun all the time, so. Um, Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something that should go, I think, I think that's something that will go without saving, saying for all of our videos that, you know, we'll be talking about a lot of the reasons why we like this or that thing about it. But ultimately, the thing that matters for the most for the both of us, I think, is just that the music is good. Yeah, that's no, the number one agree. priority. And the rest of it comes after that. Yeah, Th there's no, totally there's no excuse. There's no excusing bad music. So Right, right. Especially here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so cool. So awesome. Great honorable mention. I think. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. I think that's a fun one. Um, um, cool. So, for my honorable mention, I, I have a video that is a video that is not new to YouTube. This has been on YouTube for a while, um, but this is, I think, a great starting point for people that maybe haven't. Um, for people that are still relatively new to the space we call classical music uh, as a springboard and a way to dive in. And this is Benjamin Zander's TED Talk, The Transformative Power of Classical Music. This yeah, is, that, that's one of the OG ones, right? That's one of the OG TED Talks. Yeah, uh, 
Yeah, this is, I think it's from, yeah, like mid to like mid late ish 2000s. Yeah. This is one of the TED Talks from before when TED was the global brand it is now. And TED Talks are still great. And I mean, some of the greatest TED Talks have happened very recently. But this was still when it was just kind of a smaller annual conference. So this is done by, or this TED Talk is by Benjamin Zander, who is one of the great pedagogical conductors and educators in, in music today. Uh, he, he runs the Boston Youth Orchestra and the Boston Philharmonic, which is kind of almost like the residency training ground to um, condition semi-professional players to eventually perhaps join the Boston Symphony, which is the world-class orchestra in Boston, or to audition and you know, join some of the grand orchestras of the world. So he's a really great educator, and in this TED Talk, his whole his whole thesis is that everyone loves classical music. They just haven't realized it yet. <laughs> it's a really wonderful TED Talk, and I think I think it's one of the best TED Talks. And I watch it myself at least every couple months just to kind of remind myself um, why I do what I love. And, and it's really great. Everyone I know that's watched it has really loved it. Now, there's a similar situation in the classical music world, because there are some people who think that classical music is dying, and there are some of us who think you ain't seen nothing yet. And rather than go into statistics and trends and tell you about all the orchestras that are closing and the record companies that are folding, I thought we should do an experiment tonight. An experiment. Actually, it's not really an experiment, because I know the outcome. Um, I mean, it's also just one of the funniest TED Talks of all time. <laughs> so it's yeah. also hilarious. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, that, that's, so yeah. A, that's a solid choice, man. Cool. All right. Shall we dive into the, the real substance of our, or shall we dive into the real lists themselves? <laughs> Let's do it. So, yeah, number five. Um, number five. I chose this video of Gilles Apop playing the cadenza for um, the third movement of Mozart's third violin concerto. Um, Gilles Pop is a, a French violinist, um, and he's really, uh, he's really kind of crazy and kind of a genius. Um, <laughs> the best kind of genius, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so a cadenza is the moment uh, that comes at the end of a concerto movement where the orchestra drops out and it's really the soloist's time to shine. It's just it's just the soloist and you know he or she can can you know show show off like as much as they want or as, or as little as they want. And and most people um, they, they they play a cadenza that is meant to be in this in the same style as the as the concerto was was written in, just so just so it's not too jarring or anachronistic. Like usually, you know, it's standard to improvise over the main themes or subject material of the piece you just played. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and yeah, and and some people write write you know cadences that are a bit more modern or something like that. But Gilles Pop, he goes completely nuts with it, um, and he takes this cadenza. You know, it's like six or seven minutes long. First of all. Um, which is way longer than uh, a cadenza for Mozart concerto normally would last, which is like maybe one or two minutes tops. Yeah. Um, and he goes nuts with it. You know, he veers into playing. He like whistles and accompanies himself on the violin um, while he's like whistling the tune. Um, he like turns the theme into like a bluegrass fiddle tune 
a Scottish reel, you know, like a Hungarian dance and Indian raga. He, he goes he goes all out on it. And what I love about it is that um, it sounds completely bonkers, but he's not really doing anything that a cadenza shouldn't be doing. He is hmm. he's improvising and doing variations on the theme. It just so happens that he is completely disrespectful of genre boundaries, um, which I think is a, an impolite to listen, you know, favorite uh, <laughs> favorite uh, point point to make. So yeah, yeah. It's funny, you could say that he's kind of breaking the rules of a cadenza, but there are no real rules of a cadenza. There, there are traditions <laughs> that we follow, I guess. Exactly. Right, but it's like there's no, there's no like strict note from a composer or anything, or usually not at least, that kind of dictate this is how you should do it. Um, no, it's kind of left up to you to improvise in the way, um, or improvise or kind of write something uh, in, in the way that would be quote, artistically valid for the piece you're playing. Exactly, yeah. But that that's up to the performer, of course. Yeah, and I, I have a total soft spot for for musicians who, you know, ruffle feathers and then, you know, when, when called on it, they say, you know, they can point to the rule book and say, but what did I do wrong? You know, yeah, er- everything right, right. I've done here is, is a completely valid statement. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, um... Yeah, right. He's he's whistling for part of it too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's like whistling the tune while he's like accompanying himself on the violin. So <laughs> it's pretty great. Incredible, incredible. And and um, for for what it's worth, you know, he's this this is not a you know one off for him. He's always doing stuff like this. So um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll put this link at the show notes. But feel free to to you know search for for Zhivila Pop and just watch any concert that he does. He's one of the most creative musicians who's who's working today. That's an awesome pick, and it's cool. He's doing it on like a very, a very standard piece of the violin repertoire. That's and true. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. He he really went. He uh, really went straight to. Yeah, it's like a classic of the repertoire, and he really went straight to you know, one of the one of the pieces that people would say is is untouchable or something, to completely mess yeah. with it. Right. Yeah. This is Mozart's third violin concerto. Yes. Right? Yeah, I, I love that he didn't do it to some, you know, crazy contemporary compo- uh, com- concerto that no one would really care if he did that to anyway. No, he, he went straight into the lion's den and <laughs> with Mozart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love it, love it. Yeah. Cool. For my number five, I picked a video that I'm pretty sure you actually introduced me to, you know, seven or eight years ago. And this is, I do think, one of the better performances on YouTube and just a really great performance of a really great piece of music you don't hear performed very often. This is uh, Gustavo Dudamel conducting the Berlin Philharmonic playing the Dance Bacchanal by Camille Saint-Saëns. Yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great video. So some of the reasons I put this on the list, yeah, I love the piece of music. Like, I really adore this piece. It's short, it's maybe seven or eight minutes, so it's kind of a and there's so much that happens in this seven or eight minutes, which is really awesome. It's cool, if you excuse the cliche, it's a very cool kind of East meets West kind of piece of classical music. Yeah, it's written by Camille Saint-Saëns, who is a 19th century French composer. 
but he incorporates a lot of Eastern, maybe Arabian sort of themes and melodies in there. And it's from his opera, um, Samson and Delilah, which I think takes place in Egypt or Middle East or something. Yeah. So... But yeah, so it's a piece of music that, yeah, isn't recorded that often, and it's performed even less often, and they just, the Berlin Philharmonic just plays it so well. I mean, they just totally nail it. And Gustavo Dudamel, I think, too, I think he always got a really good sound out of the Berlin Philharmonic. You know, he's the music director and, con- and conductor down with the Los Angeles Philharmonic these days. I know when the Berlin Phil was looking for a new music director, I know he was in consideration. Um, uh, they ended up choosing last year uh, Kirill Petrenko. I think I'm pronouncing yeah. that right. The Russian conductor. Yeah. Um, uh, which, I mean, he's fantastic. But whenever Gustavo Dudamel always guest conducted the Berlin Philharmonic, I always thought they sounded particularly good and particularly interesting as well. Yeah, and for sure. It's a piece that uh, it's a piece that has gone out of style. It seems like it was all the rage for a while, and then um, you mm. know it sort of dropped off the map. And I, I haven't seen it programmed for a while. Yeah, I haven't, yeah. haven't seen it, you know, in a CD in a while or whatever in an album. That was yeah, streaming like a, a new recording. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, Albrecht Meyer plays the solo for that, right? The oboe solo. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I love how yeah the cameraman zooms into the wrong guy at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of this, don't know his name, but the English horn player who plays. Uh, yeah, I think I think that must be Dominic Wallenweber. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but he's just like staring off into space. <laughs> yeah. But that's part of the fun of it being like a of it being a live performance, and I think this was one of their New Year's Eve performances too. So yeah, it's, it's cool. I want to say 2011. Um, yeah, could be. Could be. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I think the woodwind section sounds exceptionally good in this, and I highly encourage people to kind of listen for that when they check this out. So all the woodwind players, all the flute, clarinet players, oboe players, and the Berlin Phil are, of course, fantastic, but they have such an interesting blend as a sound and as a section that's truly unique. I don't think there's any other orchestra in the world right now that kind of has a sound like theirs, obviously, but a sound as interesting and as unique is theirs and uh it they almost it sounds like one it really does kind of sound like one instrument that has that's a blend of all these tones um and i think that comes from the fact that they're all all the woodwind players in, in the section are all really of course all really world renowned but all very different in a lot of their approaches to sound and style of course they all phrase together and because of that it makes the sound a lot more interesting I think, as opposed to all of them trying to sound like each other. Yeah, they they all sound completely. They all have like very unique styles, but also um, there's something in the in in how open the sound is for each of the players. As different and interesting as they are, they're all very open, and um, for lack of a better phrase, they all have a lot of room in each other's sounds for the other for the other timbres. Mm. So mm. Um, it, it it instead of sounding like you said, instead of sounding like, you know, multiple instruments, it really sounds like one sort of weird woodwind instrument that we have not yet invented. I mean, and also the, 
you know, this is a piece by Camille Saint-Saëns, who I always thought and still do think is one of the underrated composers. Uh, he was, you know, the most un-French French composer in a way. <laughs> yeah, he was the most romantic yeah, he, of the French composers. Right, right. I mean, he wrote symphonies, you know, which the Germans and Russians were doing that when the French were not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Writing piano pieces, piece for solo instruments and small ensembles uh, and operas, too. Um, and people out there will probably recognize a lot of his music, um, uh, even though they may not know his name. His music has been in a lot of commercials and used around. Um, it, I believe it's... I believe some of his music was used in a John Jameson whiskey commercial lately. <laughs> when it took a barrel of John Jameson's whiskey, well, that was another matter. But Jameson was generous. You may recognize it from there. <laughs> yeah, the, was it the, um, the dance makeup? Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, his music has found his, his, its way into movies and, and stuff as well. If you listen to his Carnival of the Animals, you might recognize his piece, uh, The Aquarium. This is because Alan Menken openly acknowledged he used it he, um, as inspiration for the opening of Beauty and the Beast, like the prologue section, when they're telling the story through the stained glass. And they do sound pretty similar, and I'm not saying it's stolen, no, but it was definitely inspiration. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, I mean, not, now that I'm thinking about it, of course. All right. Awesome. Time, All right. for, time for number four. Working down the list, number four. All right. So yeah, my, my number four choice was um, was Jean-Pierre Rampal playing the suite for flute and jazz piano trio by Claude Bowling. Um, and this is with Claude Bowling himself on piano. Cool, um, cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, just first of all, I mean, I, I really love this piece. It's, um, it's super interesting and fun. It's kind of written for... Um, like classical flute, like the flute is like the straight man, um, and then there's a jazz piano trio going on underneath it that's going completely bonkers. So it's it's a really fun piece. This this is a video recording that that sort of accompanies the album that they put out and. Um, it has like little bits of rehearsal um, in the middle, and those are always fun for me. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, Jean-Pierre Rampal was one of the first people to put um, the flute on the map as a solo instrument. Mm. Um, you mm. know, before him, it was it was um, you know after the 18th century, um, the flute was really delegated to the role of orchestral instrument, and and, sure, and okay. Rampal really. Um, you know, he really made it made it like a, a true solo instrument again. And, um, you know, I think the, the sound that is in vogue today and the technical standards have changed and, and risen since his day. But I still think there's something in the, the warmth and the, 
beauty that that Ron Paul plays with that is unmatched by most of the flutists working today. Um, I can only gotcha. think of a few who I still, you know, who, who bring a smile to my face as, as easily as, as Ron Paul does. So, um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so it's a, yeah, it's a jazz trio underneath it, which yes. is flute, I think, could and should be a, a quote, jazz instrument. <laughs> um, every time I hear flute and jazz, I always love it. So, yeah, it, it really, um, I don't know why, but it really, it really lends itself to, to, to both classical and jazz. I mean, that's something that our instruments, you know, have in common that they're, they're really, yeah, true. Yeah, they're really equally of both worlds. I also I also just really love love this because um, he he is like a, a a beacon of the old uh, French school um, and and really like the like the Marse school which is different from the from the Paris school um, and gotcha. that, that's a sound that you it's just, it's not actually no scratch that it's like a it's a way of playing it's a way of being that I don't see too often in the in the modern um, flute world so. Hmm. Um, you know that it's something. You know this isn't the this isn't the most important or like the best recording of a flute that there has ever been, but it's the one that um, warms my heart and uh, you know, like I said, it's it's my desert island, um, flute media. So yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Would you say there are more players in the Parisian school? Yeah, I mean I don't know about Marseille school. I don't know about um, more or fewer, but there I think they're more um, they're more successful. Like the like the, ah, the people okay. yeah the people who are on the the sort of more most visible forefront of the industry are sort of disseminated from Paris on because um, mm-hmm. that's where that's where people like Michel de Boss and before him Tafanel Gobert Marcel Moyes that's that's sort of where everyone went through but um, there's a small you know Marseille school where um, actually um, Ron Paul's father taught he was like the one of the originals of that and then that got passed down to sort of um Rampal and Maxence Laryu who taught Jean Ferrandis um mm-hmm. so um yeah who you studied, who I studied with, with. Or... yeah so yeah I, I have a I have a particular love for the for the for the Marseille school and um it's, it's like I said it's just a way it's a way of playing that's just so so rare um right. especially especially yeah. in modern days when people are obsessed with um you know, like a big, robust sound. Like s- some of the flute players that I hear today, you know, sometimes it sounds like they could be saxophonists or trombonists. But when Ron Paul plays, <laughs> you know, it's always, it's always a flute. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I find that so fascinating. How, just take the flute world for example, um, and every instrument is kind of like this. How there's, you know, a German school, a British school, an American school for like, for these different styles of playing and different qualities of sound you go after. But even like in the French school, there are multiple schools of playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so rolling on to my number four. Uh, my number four is one of my favorite um, kind of token brass ensemble videos on my list. But yeah, this is one of the funniest videos of, quote, classical music on YouTube. And this is a video of Manozel Brass. 
They are an amazing brass ensemble. I believe it's their instrument their instrumentation is something like a few trumpets, a few trombones, and a tuba. And they're just hilarious. They're not only are they all incredible players. The story with them is they're all um, former orchestral players from Austria. So they all they played in a bunch of the of the big Austrian orchestras like Vienna State Opera, the Vienna Philharmonic. And they met at a pub or bar called Menazel, as M N O Z I L, and kind of formed a brass group. And they are just incredible performers and they tour all over the world it's a full-time job now they play in this brass ensemble and it is just as i used to say it's dinner and a show it's just <laughs> a comedy routine crossover with jazz and classical music at the same time and they're just fantastic the piece in this video is called hungarian schnapp city <laughs> um, a play off of hungarian rhapsody <laughs> so it's yeah they're so good so great yeah, their their yeah. um, their trombonist is quite a character, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's he's the one Hungarian of the bunch, and he he's kind of like the lead lead uh, player in this particular uh, performance and video. And they bring something to the table which isn't done enough, which is comedy in the concert hall. Totally, yeah. Right? I mean, they're so great and amusing and entertaining. And, of course, they're all incredible players. They're all phenomenal guys. Um, the head of the group is Thomas Gaunch, who is an incredible trumpet player. But, yeah, they they bring fun and comedy in a casual sort of attire to, to, to the concert hall, which isn't done enough these days. And again, just to reiterate, I mean, the music is is wonderful. I mean, these are these are world class musicians. You know, they're not yeah they're not f-ing around. You know, or, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah they're not just like bumming around. You know, on stage, they are f-ing around. <laughs> they're not bumming. Around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I was about to I was about to correct you. Yeah, they're they're f-ing around, but they have more than earned the right to f-ing around yeah. and do it <laughs> and do it deliberately. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, they're a great group and. I mean, just free idea out there. You know, this has been done before with brass ensembles. Like Canadian Brass was one of the first big brass quintets back in you know the seventies and eighties was when they got going, and they kind of took this approach too, where it was kind of a comedy show and a classical performance at the same time, but with string chamber groups like string quartets or woodwind quintets, there's no one really doing this, or at least no one I'm aware of. So it's an open market. Yeah, I think we're just not as fun. <laughs> yeah, we're just we're, we're just your uh, words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, I know for sure. I mean, even even I mean, I'm sure anyone who's played in an orchestra will tell you that the orchestra dynamics, you know, j- just like a classroom, the the people are having more fun in the back. You know? <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> just like the school bus or the classroom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> back row is where it's at. Yeah, this is a clip. This um this ten minute segment or so is from a big concert that they did, and it's really fantastic and i guarantee you'll laugh and have a good time while watching it solid choice um cool. should, we, should we do number three yeah let's yeah. let's give away the bronze medal all right all so right. yeah um so the number three on my list is this video that is the um it's the final 10 minutes of a concert with 
Claudio Bado, who is an Italian conductor who used to be the principal conductor for the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, he is conducting um, Mahler, Mahler's Ninth Symphony with the Luzern Festival Orchestra. Um, so Mahler, Mahler was a um, Austro-Hungarian, Prussian, what do, you, what do you call it? So wait, he was born in the region of Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic, so it's, it's yeah. kind of washy to, to like put nationality on him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that a Prussian matter. composer. I haven't, heard, yeah. I haven't heard that one, actually, but that one's actually probably, probably the most probably closest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah um, but I mean, he's usually grouped in like the German school. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was a German or Austrian composer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Even there, I'm already already getting. <laughs> I'm going to piss people off saying that. So, uh, yeah. but yeah. So. In, in any case, that we can maybe scratch all that. He's then. buried in Vienna, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Austria's greatest PR move was to convince the world that um, Hitler was German and Beethoven is Viennese. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. So yeah, this is the video that is Claudio Bado conducting the final 10 minutes of Mahler's Ninth Symphony. And mm-hmm. what I really love about this is um, that this, his Ninth Symphony, which is the final one that he finished, um, it, the, the last bit of it is, you know, it's, it's just strings and they all have mute, they're, they're all muted. And um, it's really beautiful and it just fades into silence it becomes nothing um the sort of edge between you know where is the string sound ending and the silence beginning becomes meaningless at the end of the symphony and mm-hmm. this um in this video um you know th- it becomes this really special moment where um the the piece is over and abato has stopped conducting he's put his hands down and the musicians have put their instruments down at rest and and yet nobody applauds for a good two, maybe even three minutes. Um, it's complete silence. The kind that I've never heard in a concert hall. People aren't even coughing. People aren't adjusting their seats. Everyone is just completely aware that they have just witnessed something really special and they're just holding still and silent. And it's, it's, an, it's really an amazing moment to capture that um, you know, when there's so many people there. It's a huge concert hall, it's a big orchestra. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's it's pin drop silence, and um, it's a really it's a really um, beautiful moment, and and then you know at the at the very end of the video, you know there is applause again, and it, it just it, right isn't there the one guy like bravo? Yeah, the one guy you know the the, the token bravo man, um, yeah, right. and then and then suddenly everyone breaks into applause, and it, it's it's just it feels wrong, it feels um, sacrilegious. <laughs> Um, and it's just, yeah. it's a, it's a real testament to, to, um, you know, just what taking away applause can, can really do for some moments. Obviously it would feel ridiculous sure. if you did that at the end of a showpiece, but, right. um, this, this is a place where applause really feels, um, banal. It, it would, it would be much better if everyone had just sort of got up and left and walked home and, you know, meditated on what they have just witnessed. Right, right. It's it's one it's one of those it's one of those symphonies that doesn't end in like a giant fanfare, right? Big, you know, loud, rambunctious finale. This Ninth Symphony of Mahler kind of just fades away into nothing. Yeah. And 
performances that end more on cue, right? Where it slowly fades away into nothing. And then there's loud applause that is louder than any of the last 10 minutes of music have been. (laughs) So it's just, I totally get what you mean. It kind of feels off. It it feels off. Yeah. And I know Abado is on, Abado has said somewhere that his favorite audience is the one that holds their applause for the longest time after the music is over. So um, I'm sure he liked that audience in this in yeah, this video and, yeah yeah and boy i mean what an orchestra the lucerne festival orchestra i used to say that they were my favorite orchestra but it, it's it's kind of cheating because they're pretty much an all-star orchestra that just convenes for a few weeks every summer in lucerne switzerland for the classical music festival there but yeah i mean they're just like the who's who of the, of the orchestral world are all in that orchestra yeah I mean, you have, like, international soloists sitting section violin. <laughs> I, think, I think it's um, Renaud Capuçon, where, like, they're just panning through the violin section, and he's there playing his heart out. You know, this is guy that people pay hundreds of dollars to go see him play a concerto, you know, from, like, the nosebleed seats. Um, yeah. And he's yeah. just, like, sitting section violin, you know, <laughs> and he's good at it, too. <laughs> Right, right. Claudio Abado, you know, handpicked this orchestra, you know, every player in every section, so... I mean, they, they just sound phenomenal. And it's also a beautiful concert hall. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't been inside, but I've been by it. I've, like, walked across the street from it. And it's beautiful because it's right on the shores of Lake Lucerne. And it, it, the architecture is such and was designed so it kind of blends into the lake, it, how it reflects lake. So it's really cool. And, and also you're in, you know, you're in Lucerne, Switzerland, so it's not, you know, the worst place to build a concert yeah. hall regardless. <laughs> But yeah, no, um, so phenomenal orchestra. All their Muller recordings are amongst the best ever. Yeah. A bunch of them are on YouTube as well. Yeah. It I know was I'm really towing a, the line, recommending more videos. Yeah. But yeah, no. Um, it was really a shame that Abato died before he could complete the Mahler cycle with Lucerne because that was shaping yeah. up to be my favorite Mahler cycle. I mean, it is, it is still my favorite Mahler cycle, you know, even if it's un- incomplete. Yeah, right. But agreed, agreed. that's a whole different topic. <laughs> Awesome choice. Awesome choice. Love it. Um, and cool. uh, what's, your, what's so, your bronze? So my number three is one of, it's also an orchestral performance. This is my favorite performance I've ever heard of An American in Paris by George Gershwin. And this is also Gustavo Dudamel, as I mentioned earlier. He's conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Yeah, when I heard this performance maybe eight years ago or so for the first time, yeah, it just blew me away. It's the best hands down the best performance I've ever heard of this piece. And it's just a conductor and, or, and an orchestra that just gets it for this. It's Gershwin in every way Gershwin should be played. Tom Hooten, the principal trumpet player, or at that time the newly appointed principal trumpet player of the LA Phil, just nails the trumpet solo. It just, it's just perfect. Because in order to play it right, you have to really toe the line between jazz and classical and really have kind of a 1930s era tone. And he does that perfectly while still sounding modern and relevant. And yeah, he just sounds fantastic. Do, do you want to maybe tell us a bit about what exactly you mean, or like maybe give a few examples of what you mean by um, uh, like towing the line between classical and jazz? Like- yeah, so kind of like a short but more rapid vibrato, which is not what you're 
taught as a brass player nowadays. Um, you know, being able to kind of bend in between notes rather than like cleanly articulating notes in a fashion. It's a little small things like that. And yeah, they're usually very small actually, but also the American in Paris trumpet solo, which is one of the more famous parts of the piece. Yeah, it's funny, in the trumpet part, in the score, it it calls for a felt crown, I believe, or like a felt cover for your bell. So basically what most players do is they put either a felt cloth over the end of their trumpet, or they'll make a felt thing to put over, <laughs> over the end of their trumpet. And the whole point is to make it sound a bit more of a faded sound, so almost like it's coming from an, an alleyway in Paris, <laughs> rather than like a... <laughs> A, a trumpet right in front of you and Tom Hooten um, he clearly like made some like, contraption he attaches to his bell which <laughs> I, I think is great <laughs> it, um, I always wonder if he like if that was like a last minute thing he, he kind of had to do or if he has had always used that for when he performs this piece but that's that kind of made me laugh <laughs> the first time I saw it and yeah, um, so it's it's also funny to kind of see every trumpet every trumpet player has this different interpretation for what Gershwin meant by you know put felt on your trumpet, <laughs> and that's also one of those places where um, where YouTube becomes really interesting, where you can see you can see all the musicians and their foibles within the orchestra. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. actually not just in orchestra, but in in solo playing as well. I mean, you know. We we are we are human and and there are like we are dealing with like machinery, you know, and contraptions. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So th there are a lot of you know stuff like that I find so charming on YouTube where you can you know you can see like you know li little contraptions that they make to to figure out the felt thing, or um, you know mechanical issues like bows breaking or page turning problems. You know you can really it's, right, it's right. a real it's a, it's a great catalog of like you know all of the sort of little. Um, the little things, like the sort of mechanical aspects of, like the technical aspects of going, you know, of performing, and also the sort of foibles of the concert hall. <laughs> totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to kind of play off that, yeah, with this performance, you can just see the orchestra is having so much fun. They know they're nailing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, which, I mean, as players, we, I mean, we know how that feels, right? Yeah, I mean, people talk about the, you know, uh, basketball players knowing that it's going to be in as soon as it leaves their hand. They don't have to, like, you know, watch it go in. It's the same way. When it's, go when it's going good, you know it's going good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I just love this piece of music. I mean, I not only because I'm a trumpet player and it has a big trumpet part, but it's just a beautiful piece of Gershwin. And, um, and uh, yeah, sadly, I mean, you know, he... He was a composer that definitely died before his time. I mean, he died, I think he was 34 when he died from a brain tumor, yeah, which is that's... just tragic. I mean, he wrote so much great music and kind of put jazz in the concert hall, you know, and became one of the great American composers. Yeah, I mean, in terms of potential energy lost, that's... Right, that's right. A pretty, that's up there with Schubert. But anyways, yeah. So 
really awesome piece, really great piece. If you like Rhapsody in Blue from your favorite United Airlines commercials. That's what makes the world's leading airline flyer friendly. You'll definitely like An American in Paris. A bit less known, but just as good. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't believe you, you brought uh, the United commercial in. <laughs> <laughs> Time for number twos? As it were. Number twos it is. Yeah, yeah. Let's... My, my number two... Um, I chose the, the video of Leonard Bernstein conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to celebrate the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, this was a performance that took place, I think, in Christmas 1989. Um, and um, it's really, it's really, um, it's an epic performance. Um, it includes, mm -hmm. it includes, um, it includes members of the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, the Staatskapelle Dresden, the Kirov Theatre Orchestra um, in Leningrad, um, the London Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, the Orchestre de Paris. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's musicians from all over, all, all over the world. Um, and it has like multiple children's choirs um, from both from East and West Germany. So it's this, it's this sort of bringing together of, of, um, of the masses. Um, yeah. And the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony um, has the famous, in the fourth movement, it has the famous Ode to Joy um, that I'm sure everyone will be familiar with. And that is a, that, the, that's a text that's written by the, the, poem, the poet um, uh, Schiller. The, this poem um, by, by, by Friedrich Schiller, it's, it's really um, celebrating um, um, like the brotherhood of all men. Um, and... I think that makes it like a really um, that really makes it a, a timely piece for that for that moment, but also um, Leonard Bernstein takes the he takes the creative license to um, change the word um, Freude or is it Freunde? No, yeah. He, so so he takes the creative license to change the word Freude to to Freiheit. So he changes it from from joy to freedom. So um, this becomes a celebration of freedom with an ode to freedom. I think it's a really beautiful moment and you can see you can see you know the hall is totally full and there are people in the plaza you know you know there's still you can see videos of them you know breaking down the wall still Mm, um, yeah, or like te tearing it down, and um, it was broadcast to like some you know twenty or thirty countries. I don't remember, um, but it's this moment that really it really like um, became more than a concert and became like a lasting testament to to what humanity could be, like humanity at our best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, no, absolutely. And for what it's worth, I think. Um, I think I think both Beethoven and Schiller would have been like totally to totally stoked to see their work becoming <laughs> becoming like a symbol of of, um, of freedom and brotherhood. Yeah, I mean that's really something. Um, it was performed in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, obviously yes, with the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, awesome. Um, and of course, since um, you know, the Ode to Joy part of the fourth movement of that symphony is the quote anthem of the European Union. Yeah, yeah. Say. So this must have been like at the very end or almost the end of Bernstein's life. Oh yeah, he yeah. He died in 1990. Yeah, he died. I think not, not yeah, not even a year after that. And um, you know, I think Bernstein was the person was the perfect person to to conduct this concert. And it's it's really you know, it's really lucky that um, that we got this in before he died. That's maybe like a tasteless thing to say, but um, I can't I can't think of many other people who who would have um, changed the the Freude to Freiheit. So. Um, hmm. You know, interesting. That, yeah. I think that's a nice touch that Bernstein added. Um, this is one of those concerts where it really kind of is, where music is so much more than just notes on a page. Yeah. You know, not to get cheesy or soppy, but actually, though, right? It, yeah. No, for for sure. It, it's one of the great yeah. one of the great moments of the 20th century, I think. And um, and and again, like the music is it's a, it's a beautiful recording. Um, it's it's a yeah. The music is great as always. Yeah, and Beethoven was a German composer, obviously, and this is reuniting East and West Germany and East and West Berlin. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so much going on, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Wow. That's my, that's my number two. It's, um, yeah, Leonard Bernstein conducting Beethoven 9 at the Fall of the Wall. So going on to my number two, it's funny you went political for yours because I did the same for mine. There you go. This, this is one of my favorite documentaries on... I mean, it's one of my favorite documentaries ever. And for those of you who know me, know I watch a lot of documentaries. <laughs> this is a documentary called Knowledge is the Beginning. And it is with Daniel Barenboim and uh, the late Edward Said on the founding of the West Eastern Devon Orchestra, which is a youth orchestra comprised of kids and musicians from across the Middle East. So they have... Um, kids from Israel, Palestine, and the occupied territories, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, so on. They are easily one of the best youth orchestras in the world, which is just crazy. They're so good, so talented, and they have many recordings um, that you can stream on Apple Music or Spotify, as well as performances on YouTube. But they're just a world-class youth orchestra and and this is about the whole story of how it came about and the whole mission behind it. And it, it was co-founded by Daniel Barenboim, who is still their conductor. And Daniel Barenboim is one of the legendary pianists and conductors of the 20th and now 21st centuries. He was the music director and conductor of the Chicago Symphony for a while. He's also music director of the Berlin Opera. And he's also a world-class piano player, one of the best pianists alive, hands down. And he co-founded this orchestra with the late Edward Said, who is a Palestinian intellectual and author and professor at Columbia University. He's probably most famous for the book Orientalism, which is, which yes, is a wonderful, yes. wonderful book. Yeah. yeah, and this documentary is just so well made. It's about why they started the orchestra, how they did it, which, I mean, how they did it is just crazy. This, these are countries that have war packs against each other. So even just the <laughs> logistics of trying to get all these kids together for a rehearsal is hard enough, let alone build an orchestra. So just about the challenges, the story, uh, the performances, um, and they're very, you know, 
they're not naive. They don't think this is going to change world history. This is going to fix the Middle East. But rather, it's just a, you know, just a small beacon of hope for a very complicated part of the world. I think that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Um, I think they're, they're all together, too many um, artists who think that they can change the world for the better with their, with their art. And it's refreshing mm-hmm. to see people who, who know the magnitude and the scale of, of that kind of a task and understand that, yeah. um, you know, an orchestra is not going to do much, but it will, it will provide some beauty in a part of the world where um, any beauty is going to be very much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the craziest parts about this orchestra is just how good they are. <laughs> I mean, they're on par with professional orchestras. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they are really good. And you're like, wait a minute, like, you know, these are kids from, uh, you know, Lebanon and Syria. Like, am I reading this right? And yeah, that's totally true. It is one of the best kept secrets, you know, that there are so many talented uh, uh, Arab musicians. It is one of the best kept It's one secrets. of the great catastrophes of the, of, uh, I'm sorry to say, of the Arab governments, that they don't, they don't try to do more with these young people, because there's really, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of talent. I, I have a feeling, by the way, I don't know, but I have a feeling that with the group we have here, we were scratching the surface. I mean, there must be... I am sure. That feeling. I'm convinced that you could really make an absolutely first-class Middle Eastern orchestra. Hmm. Um, it, I mean, it's also... And I don't know if this, this should be in the show, but I also... also this, it's interesting to me how it can be that an orchestra will, will sound... Like, a, like an orchestra like this one, you know, made of um, people in contentious territories... Um, they don't necessarily have to like each other, let alone love each other, or agree with each other's politics to play music together. Um, hmm. I think it's it's easy to to think of, to to look at something like this and think, oh, isn't it great that music is bringing everyone together? Um, I don't necessarily. I think that's true in only the most superficial sense. I think the music is not. It's it's not that the music is bringing people together. It's that music gives something for people to do and and that's that's yeah. what um you know it, it's like an attention it's like an attention diverter rather than rather than like a unifying force um but that's valuable too and that's interesting right and of course arts are always the first place the first arts are always one of the first things to suffer when politics doesn't go quote the right way <laughs> yeah and it, no, it's also just a really well-made documentary. Of course, Daniel Berenboin is a Israeli-Argentine pianist and conductor, and Edward Said is Palestinian. So, there's a, at the very founding of the conception of this orchestra, let alone the orchestra itself, there's already something on paper where you kind of scratch your head, but it works. You know, it works. Yeah. And um, just one final note: if anyone is interested, yeah. I think there's a book about the founding of the West East Divan Orchestra. Um, I think yeah. it's called an orchestra without borders. It's not. It's not written by Daniel Barenboim, but um, I think he's he features heavily in the book, and he's always he's he's you know talking about it a lot. So um, that's that's something cool. inter- interesting to check out if you're looking for something you know more detailed than a documentary can reasonably be, unless you're Ken Burns, <laughs> and, unless you produce twenty hour long documentaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, um, absolutely, and yeah, um, no, it's well made. There's interviews with 
the kids, the players, audience members. Yeah. Um, no, it's really fantastic. And the music is great, as we keep saying. Yeah. Time for the grand prize. Right. <laughs> um, bring it back into the realm of the personal after the political. So my number one pick is a video of Glenn Gould, the Canadian pianist um, that we've talked about before. Um, it's a video of him playing um, Bach's Contrapunctus 14. So I, I, I chose this video because, um, this, because the Contrapunctus 14 is probably my favorite piece of music, and this is my favorite recording of it. But it's one of those pieces where the more you listen to it and the more you, you know about Bach's music, the more rewarding it is. So it really, it really um, bears, like the, 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 the most of the reward is born through repeated listening, but I think it's totally worth it. The, it's, from, it's from Bach's Art of Fugue, which is a collection, it's a collection of, um, of like 14 fugues and four canons, which, which um, sort of try to expound on, the, on like all of the contrapuntal possibilities of a single subject. It's basically, it's, it, it's, a, it's a whole set of pieces that basically take like one little theme and see how much you can like milk out of like just one phrase. And it, you know, it starts off relatively simple, and then by the time you get to this this fourteenth fugue, you know he's doing it's like a you know it's like a four part triple fugue going into a quadru- quadruple fugue or something like that. Um, it gets really complicated, but it's all still from that same like germ of material, um, and I find mm-hmm. that really really interesting. And to to tie it all back to my honorable mention. The, the, this this piece is not written for any particular instrument. It's, it, he he left the instrumentation unspecified. Glenn Gould plays it on piano, but it could be played on anything. It's just sort of abstract music that's that's left there, you know, mm. as a sort of uh, exploration of the possibilities of musical sound. I I, th- I think of this kind of like the monolith in Space Odyssey, um, <laughs> in like all of Bach's artistic um, pieces are, are kind of like. They just sort of, sort of stand there, and the more you look at them and, and observe them and think about them, the more there is to get out of it. Right. And, and right. this last, this last view, this fourteenth one, is unfinished, um, and it just ends in the middle of a phrase. It's not, it's, it's not tied up in any neat way. And I think a lot of people either try to finish it for Bach, uh, or they try, to, or they do something where they, where it sort of fades into nothing. But Glenn Gould makes um, a real statement out of the unfinished moment. <laughs> he, he, it's like this unfinished phrase that, and he, you know, he really violently cuts its head off. So <laughs> I, I, I find that really um, interesting. But yeah, yeah, it, I think it's a case too where, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people, consider Bach the greatest composer, and this is in a way like the most Bachian of Bach pieces. Yeah, <laughs> this is a really unfiltered look at the genius of Bach. Yes. It's very concentrated Bach. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think right, as right. Bach got older, he was turning more. As as people do, he was turning more and more inwards and um, getting really into the sort of mathematics of music. And this last mm. thing that he was working on was, it's really like a really concentrated culmination of his life's work. You know, there are more fun pieces that he's written. There are more dramatic pieces that he's written. There are you know much longer pieces that he's written, but in terms of you know what is the most Bachian of Bach, um, hmm. this is really where 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 the where it comes to. Mm-hmm. 
Gould, of course, is a is a great person to to play this kind of music. It's very rigorous, very intellectual. Um, it's it's secular music, but there's a sort of sacred tension to it. There's, there's a sort of seriousness of purpose that someone mm. with Glenn Gould's you know almost puritanical approach to music making. Um, there's no. It's it's such a severe look at a very severe piece. And mm-hmm. I find it, you know, utterly captivating. Right, right. No, I mean, it's right up his alley. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like Bach wrote it for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a great pick. And it's not like the kind of first place pick I thought you would pick. Oh, yeah? <laughs> at first. But it totally, it totally makes sense now. Yeah. How do you mean? Like, yeah. Oh, I mean, just, I don't know. I thought your first place pick would have been, I'm not sure, maybe grander or uh grander not in like a i mean in like the literal yeah, sense yeah. not in a better sense yeah that or because yeah i guarantee i mean i actually be curious what the comments are like underneath that video <laughs> on that's youtube that's interesting yeah i should check that out <laughs> i do yeah, wonder i do um, wonder um it's 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 one of those pieces that's not super i mean it sounds it, obviously again it sounds wonderful but it's not it's not super approachable. You would never hear it perform live. I mean, most likely. Yeah, it's it's right, like barely so. performed. I mean, I think some of the earlier contrapuntist fugues are more often performed, but this fourteenth okay, yeah. one, you know, it's getting, it's getting so, um, esoteric, that it's yeah, simply yeah. not not very often performed or recorded, and um, that's why right. I love that you know this, this is really. Um, this is like a, an important musical artifact and the fact that it's just sort of on mm. YouTube for you to like, you know, <laughs> click on a link and check out for free is, you know, insane. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, it, when, when you get into this 14th fugue, there's, there, there are arguments to be made that, you know, the foundations of all modern music are there. And, you know, again, it's, it's just like hanging out on YouTube with, how many views? I don't know. And like, yeah, like your thought of like, what what are the what are the what is the comment section going to be like underneath this? Yeah, you know, like Space Odyssey monolith situation. I'm so curious. Really good pick, though. Um, no, I mean that's a very that's a piece that definitely has earned its spot yeah. <laughs> at the top of the list. I mean, it's great. So for my number one pick, I chose one of my favorite, most captivating and energetic performances on YouTube, um, maybe ever. So I chose Leonard Bernstein conducting the Boston Symphony Orchestra performing Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. It is such a performance. It is so good. Um, So I always thought Leonard Bernstein sounded really great conducting, or I always thought he got a really great sound out of the Boston Symphony. And when he, he was always careful and, you know, meticulous when when he chose to conduct Boston, um, you know, he was, his full-time job was music director and conductor of the New York Philharmonic for, what, half a century or something. Um, so, so he, but he was from Massachusetts. He, you know, went to school in Boston, you know, he went to Harvard and things. And, 
uh, yeah, I, he always just felt a bit more at home when he was conducting Boston because he was doing it for fun. He wasn't doing it like for his job. <laughs> yeah. So some of his, his greatest performances and finest hours, I think, were conducting the Boston Symphony. And this is an incredible performance conducting them at Tanglewood, which is the the summer like they're like the summer. It's the summer home of the Boston Symphony out in Western Massachusetts, where the Boston Symphony kind of has a classical music summer festival out there every year and has for a very long time. And they're not even performing at the main the main um, concert hall at Tanglewood. I believe it's called Ozawa Hall after C.J. Ozawa, the great conductor. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're performing in kind of like, I mean, it's, it's a stage, but I forget. It's almost like a multi-purpose room sort of thing. <laughs> and, and there's only maybe like 20 or 30 rows of audience. So it's not like a grand venue. It's a pretty like tight, tightly packed venue. And I, I think they did that because it was easier back when this was recorded, at least in the in the mid 70s was when this performance was. Which was also like Bernstein at his prime. That's when he was, you know, truly the grandest artist of his years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they chose this venue because it was easier to film there as opposed to the the main concert hall at Tanglewood. But anyways, it it's just kind of funny. The orchestra is, you know, in formal attire, tuxes and things. And the, the audience is just in shorts and t-shirts and sandals because it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a summer concert in a not concert venue. But boy, I mean, it just... This is one of those performances where you just don't want it to stop. The Boston Symphony just sounds so good. Bernstein and the orchestra are just giving their all. They're just putting everything they have into this piece. And it's it's just phenomenal. It's so good. That's a, that's a great choice, um, and Tchaikovsky's fifth, fifth Symphony is is such a beautiful piece. It, it almost needs to, it it bears repeating or it bears reminding. I think because um, it's such a famous piece, and uh, you know parts of it are so famous, um, mm-hmm, and it has mm-hmm. become such a staple of the repertoire. Um, yeah, you know, not unlike the uh, the other Tchaikovsky piece we were talking about last time, the Nutcracker where it can be easy mm-hmm. to just sort of accept it as something that's always there. But, I mean, truly, right. it is it is an incredible, beautiful piece of music. It's Tchaikovsky at his finest. I mean, like, everything you love about Tchaikovsky is in this symphony. Yeah. As a trumpet player, too, um, the guy playing principal in the Boston Symphony is Armando Gatala, and he is one of the legendary orchestral trumpet players. He, he was principal of the Boston Symphony for years and years, and... He taught at the New England Conservatory and basically taught like a full generation of trumpet players. He he taught Ray Mace, who is principal trumpet of the New York City Ballet Orchestra for a long time. And he's been professor at Juilliard for years now. He taught um, Tom Hooten, who we who we referenced earlier, who plays principal of the LA Philharmonic now. He taught um, Roger Vozan, who would later become the principal of the Boston Symphony. He also joined the Boston Symphony as second trumpet when he was like 17. So just like an, an incredible trumpet <laughs> player. 
and Ingatala too. Uh, yeah, he was an Italian, uh, Italian American trumpet player who, who also had um, a big impact on modern trumpet technique, to the point that you can usually tell by, by a trumpet player, um, kind of almost by their technique and the way they talk about technique. If they either studied with Gatala or if they studied with a Gatala student. <laughs> You know, he, he just had such a lasting effect on trumpet pedagogy and things. Um, yeah, but anyway, it's, yeah, a phenomenal performance. The best you'll ever hear Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony performed. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really awesome. Um, the, the second movement of the, of the Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony has, like, a, has a famous horn solo that, that is... Yeah, um, the French yeah. horn solo, yeah. And that one, that, that was the um, inspiration for the, for the sort of the main melody of, um, of Annie's song, of John Denver's Annie's song. I don't know if you know that. Oh, yeah. really? Da, 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 da. You fill up my senses like a night. Yeah, oh. it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I think I think I John Denver so. even specifically credits Tchaikovsky for the for the theme. So that that's an interesting, you know, pop music connection. Yeah. Yeah. No, n- interesting. Um, it's just one one of those performances that's really special in the audience. I, kind of contrary to one of your previous points, but this is a time where you know it's a big it's a big finale of a symphony, and the audience just springs to their feet. It's an epic it's, finale. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, definitely a moment where where the 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 finale is is grand and in Bernstein's hands, you know, I mean Bernstein is responsible for some epic concert finales. <laughs> that is true. That is true. In after parties, from what I hear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, yes. Um, no, that's great. That's uh, awesome. Leonard Leonard Bernstein conducting Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Amazing performance. Awesome. Cool. Whew. There we have it. You know our our top fives and honorable mentions, and it goes without saying we'll make this into a YouTube yeah, playlist. Yeah. So just well. to wrap it up with a with a bow nicely, um, you know, all these links will be in the show notes in the order that they come up in the show, um, and then we'll also put a YouTube playlist out there for for you folks, and um, we hope you enjoy. I mean, like Chris said, I think in the beginning, um, we really hope this is a springboard for you and. Um, we were saying last time that one of the one of the good things about YouTube is this is a related video section. So feel free to go down or not feel free. Um, so we, we hope you end up going down, you know, the kind of long rabbit holes that YouTube um, can get you on um, with any of the videos yeah. that, that we suggested here today. And Let us know. I mean, there's a good chance you'll find some stuff that you like that we haven't seen. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I'll I'll, I'll put the um, I'll put our Twitter in the show notes just like last time. And um, if you if you guys have any um, if you guys out there have any favorite videos, um, you know, please tweet at us or whatever. Um, we we'd love to hear them. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, love it. Well, hmm, I've been told, Streeter, <laughs> that we need a better way to end these episodes. <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing a lot about that too. 